0: Hello listeners, as an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And, if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You've
1: got speed, John Glenn.
2: Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel
1: out. Okay, I'm
3: out.
2: How does it feel for the United States to be the
3: new record holder? At last, huh?
0: Hello and welcome, this is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 216 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Transposition, Docking and Extraction. We ended last week's episode after the Saturn V third stage boosted the stack into a very long extended ellipse around Earth, the apogee of which was beyond the moon's orbit. This trajectory was arranged in such a way that the moon would gravitationally intervene and cause the spacecraft to loop around its far side. Now, having left the vicinity of Earth, it was time to begin the procedure for the Apollo 11 Command and Service Module separation from the third stage.
3: Apollo 11, uh, this is Houston. For your information, we expect the maneuver to separation attitude to begin... At uh, three plus zero five plus zero three, and to be completed at uh, plus zero nine plus two zero. Uh, separation at three plus one five plus zero zero.
1: Uh, this is Apollo Control. The velocity falling off now. Immediately after shutdown, we're showing thirty-four thousand uh, feet per second. Now, at the altitude uh, building five hundred twelve nautical miles.
3: Apollo 11, this is Houston, and all the booster functions are proceeding normally. The sequencing is in good shape, and it doesn't look like they're having any problems at all. Over. Roger.
1: This is Apollo Control, and we're showing orbital weight now, 138,892.9 pounds.
0: Inside the command module, it was time to play musical chairs, switching seats for the transposition and docking maneuver. Collins would fly the maneuver from the left couch, with Armstrong moving to the center and Aldrin on the far right. This was the moment Collins had been practicing for over the last seven years. Collins had been the first man to dock with another object in space on the flight of Gemini 10. This was Collins' first chance to get his hands on the controls of Apollo 11, and he was looking forward to it even if it was nothing like flying a jet fighter or the small Gemini capsule. The command module left-hand controller moved the ship forward and backward and rolled it right and left. The right-hand controller could turn the ship end over end. Colin's first task was to separate the command and service module from the Saturn and proceed away from it at a safe distance then turn around and face it. The slower he made the turn, the less fuel it would cost. However, Collins did not want to turn around too slowly because he did not want the third stage and the lunar module behind him to be out of sight any longer than necessary. In the simulator, Collins worked out a compromise which involved separating at a relative velocity of only one-half a mile per hour and then, after 15 seconds, starting the 180-degree turn at a rate of 2 degrees per second. Slow, deliberate work, which would bring the Saturn into view in a minute or so, while he coasted out some 75 feet. He would fly it manually, except he would ask the computer to help him with the turnaround to keep the proper rate of turn going. But before Collins could do anything, The S-4B third stage had to move to the correct attitude where the sun would be shining on the lunar module.
1: The S-4B has completed its maneuver to separation attitude. At 3 hours 11 minutes into the mission, velocity 26,314 feet per second. Distance from Earth 3,140 nautical miles. The S4B is reported in a stable attitude for this separation. Rates are less than one tenth of a foot per second in all axes. One minute to separation.
3: Apollo 11, this is Houston. Uh, your go for separation. Uh, Our system's recommendation is uh, arm both Pyro buses over. Okay, Pyro B coming armed. Uh, my intent is to use. Uh Primary one is for the checklist, therefore I just turned it on. Oh, Roger. we can with the logic.
0: When the time came, Collins hit the button that detonated the explosives between the spacecraft and the third stage adapter. Then, with his left hand, he pushed the small left-hand control handle forward. Thrusters mounted around the periphery of the service module fired, and the crew felt a barely perceptible thrust as they moved away from the third stage. The conical adapter atop the third stage then split into four segments and opened like the petals of a flower to reveal the lunar module.
1: We're awaiting confirmation of separation. We confirm
0: the separation here on the ground. When the panel instruments told Collins he had the proper speed, he relaxed his hand and the thrusting ceased. Now they coasted for a few seconds, and then Collins started a pitch-up maneuver by rotating his right wrist upward. When the motion seemed established, Collins took his right hand off the stick and pushed the P R O, Pro, button on the computer keyboard. Pro meant that the computer should proceed with what it had been told to do, but for some reason the computer balked and Collins had to hit pro a couple of times to make it continue to turn around. In the process, it was firing thrusters unnecessarily as the motion stopped and started, and Collins was perplexed and disgusted by it. By the time they finally got turned around, the command module had drifted at least 100 feet from the Saturn, and it was going to cost more fuel to get it back. In addition, the gadget which kept track of their speed relative to the Saturn was reading a preposterous number, so Collins really did not know how fast he was moving, although his eyeballs told him he was drifting away from the Saturn ever so slowly. So Collins took a guess at it and thrust it forward with his left hand, holding the craft steady with his right hand. As they closed, Collins could see the lunar module nestled in its container atop the third stage like a mechanical tarantula crouched in its hole. Its one black eye peered malevolently at him. It was the drogue into which he must insert the probe. Now, I want to pause the docking for a quick explanation of how the probe and drogue worked. At the apex of the command module was the docking probe, an intricate device that could capture the lunar lander and connect the two ships. If you ignored the three struts that moved the docking probe in and out, the finished product looked like a stainless steel baton. The head could swivel to compensate for a misaligned target, and on contact with the lander's mating cone, three claws would spring out to latch the probe into the cone. Then it drew the lander inward until the mating rings on the two vehicles touched. Then a circle of latches snapped in place, and the two ships were locked together in a solid embrace. The amazing thing was, that this whole intricate mechanism could be removed. Probe, mating cone, and all with the turn of a crank. The resulting hole was the tunnel the astronauts used to enter the lunar lander. The unsung hero behind this piece of techno jewelry was a North American landing gear specialist named Dusty Rhodes. He and Charlie Feltz had worked together on the X-15, and while that project was loaded with tricky little problems, it was easy compared to this. At one point, they were in so much trouble that Phelps created a separate three-man division consisting of himself, Rhodes, and the head of manufacturing for North American. In the morning, Dusty would come up with a fix for the immediate problem. Feltz would have the drawings whipped out that afternoon, and the night shift at the Los Angeles division would manufacture it. The next morning, they would test it, come up with another fix, and go back to the drawing boards. After several hundred modifications, the thing finally worked every time, no matter how hard you slammed into it or from what angle. Now, let's go back to docking. Collins was not able to see the probe out of his window as it was down and to the right out of his field of view, but this was not a problem. Collins peered out through an optical sight which displayed crosshairs in the sky in front of him. A three-dimensional cross was mounted on the appropriate place on the lunar module. When Collins' crosshairs were precisely superimposed on it, the probe and the drogue were in perfect alignment, and it was then simply a question of holding that position and driving the probe into the drogue with just the right emphasis. It was similar to aerial refueling of aircraft, except that no airflow or turbulence was in space, so the process was smoother. As Collins got closer, the visibility was very good. The sun was back over his shoulder, and the lunar module filled his window with gold foil, flat gray surfaces and tubular legs, and iridescent window panes. Above all, that standoff cross beckoned him, and he tensed up as it came closer. Collins worked both hands. His left hand controlled whether to move up or down, left or right, in or out. His right hand held them steady and pointed in the right direction, making corrections of pitch, roll, or yaw angles in response to what his eyes told his hands. During this time, Buzz and Neil were simply spectators, since only Collins was in a position to align the spacecrafts. It must have been a strange sensation for them to be so close to the third stage and lunar module and to know they were about to collide with it, but when, where, and how. They were so close now that the exhaust gases from the rocket control motors were impinging on the lunar module and causing its thin skin to ripple rhythmically like wind blowing over a wheat field. It all looked good. They were only inches away now, and Collins had time for just one last correction. He thrusted forward, and it felt like a gentle kiss. Collins changed computer mode to free, fired one gas bottle to retract the probe. Bang! The latches slapped in position down in the tunnel, and they were docked. It wasn't the smoothest docking Collins had ever done, but Neil said it felt good from his seat. Actually, it was fine except for the extra fuel used. Collins' gas gauge wasn't that precise, but he estimated he used 80 pounds of propellants rather than 50, which was planned. It really shouldn't matter. Still, he knew well from the Gemini 10 experience how easy it was to gulp down extra fuel and he wanted to save every last drop in case of an unexpected situation around the moon. Here's Colin's thoughts on how the docking went. Roger, Houston, Apollo 11,
3: go ahead. Uh, Roger, could you give us some uh, comments on how the transposition docking went? Over. Uh, I thought it went pretty well, Houston, although I expect I used more gas than I've been using in the simulator. Uh, the turnaround maneuver, uh, I went command and started to pitch up and then when I put the uh, manual attitude pitch back to rate command for some reason it uh, it stopped its pitch rate and I had to uh, go back to Excel command and hit what I thought was an extra proceed on the disc uh, A more gas,
0: and Collins slid out of his seat and eased down into the lower equipment bay to inspect the tunnel. First, he removed the tunnel hatch, checked the probe and the drogue hardware, which held the lunar module to the command module, and connected an electrical plug which supplied power from the command module to the lunar module. The hatch came off easily, and as Collins stuck his head into the tunnel, the pungent odor of some burned substance surrounded him. It smelled as if it was charred electrical wire insulation, but all the exposed wires appeared in brand new condition, not discolored as they would be if they were overheated. Collins simply couldn't find any source for the smell, which appeared to be getting better, so he assumed it was due to some past condition that no longer existed. Perhaps something overheated in the dense lower atmosphere during launch, or perhaps some of the rocket fumes from the launch escape tower motors were trapped in the tunnel. Collins ignored the smell as best he could and proceeded with his checklist, checking each docking latch by hand, jiggling it to make sure it had really seated properly. Collins counted 12 good ones. Then he checked himself by counting again, and they were all engaged. The probe and the drogue system had successfully jumped its first hurdle. Currently, the lunar module was in a vacuum condition. Prior to launch, a valve in the lunar module's overhead hatch was deliberately left open so that its atmosphere would evacuate during the ascent to space. To save from using its consumables, the lunar module cabin was to be repressurized using air from the command module cabin. However, the pressure in the command module had to be kept within an acceptable range. So before they could open the valve that would let their air into the tunnel between the two spacecraft and hence into the lunar module, The crew needed to ensure there was plenty of air in the command module. But the command module was only reading a pressure of 4.4 psi, which was on the low side. So, with mission control's approval, the astronauts used additional oxygen to bring the command module up to 5 psi and then continued the equalization procedure with the lunar module. Now let's move on to extraction. At T plus 4 hours 17 minutes, it was time to separate the lander, command module, and service module from the third stage. Collins detonated the explosive bolts holding the lander to the third stage, and that booster was cast adrift like the others. Houston, we're ready for land
3: ejection. Uh, roger, go for a ejection. Thank you. Houston, we are set. We have a cryo press light.
0: The lunar module gently sprung loose from the third stage, and the command module slash service module backed the joined spacecrafts away from the third stage. The crew's job now was to get a safe distance away from it. Meanwhile, the discarded third stage was nearly empty of fuel and nearly dead. But, unlike the first stage that fell into the Atlantic, and the second stage that burned up in the atmosphere, the third stage had achieved escape velocity along with its payload, which meant it was also headed for the moon. To steer the rocket clear of the spacecraft, its remaining fuel was blown overboard through a vent, and this tiny jet gave the thing just enough of a nudge to clear the moon altogether and fall into a long elliptical orbit around the sun. The crew moved themselves away from the third stage by firing the big service module engine for the first time. This engine was the one that would slow them down enough when they arrived at the moon to be captured by its gravity instead of flying on by. Once captured, they would stay captured until the engine was fired again give them the extra speed needed to return home. All their equipment was important, but this engine was vital, obviously and dramatically so, and they were eager to have a look at it. This burn was only three seconds long, but that was enough to give them a fairly comprehensive look at the engine, its combustion chamber, its propellant supply system, its nozzle swiveling capability, and so on. Since it produced 20,000 pounds of thrust, and their combined vehicle weighed 100,000 pounds, when it lit, it gave them only a slight boot in the behind, one-fifth of a G. But it was a reassuring feeling nonetheless. In the three brief seconds it fired, all looked good to the crew, and the ground confirmed that their telemetry information revealed no flaws. Now, they really were on the way to the moon.
3: 11 uh, Houston, your systems are looking good. We're standing by for the burn.
1: The duration of this burn will be three seconds. Delta V, 19.7 feet per second.
0: Ignition. Shutdown. Collins' next task involved realigning their inertial platform for the second time. And again, with help from the computer in pointing the sextant, it went swiftly and well. But his next task, measuring the angles between five selected stars and the Earth's horizon, did not go so well. Collins could see a couple of stars, like Altair, but had difficulty finding that spot on the horizon which was directly below them, the substellar point, as it is called. In other cases, such as Enif, the star was not bright enough to be readily seen. Finally, Collins waded through them all, but the results were not very accurate and he was discouraged. Of course, this exercise was for practice, as they would not have to rely on such measurements unless they lost radio contact with the ground. But nonetheless, it was a shock for Collins to realize his difficulties with navigation. The astronaut's next task concerned the sun, and the problem was the heat it produced. The service module was vulnerable, if held in any one fixed position. The side of it pointing at the sun would become too hot, and the side in the shade would become too cold. Too hot meant propellant tank pressures rising dangerously high. Too cold meant radiators freezing. To prevent either, the crew must position themselves broadside to the sun and then rotate slowly, like a chicken on a motorized barbecue spit. This is easier said than done, though, as it requires a very precise sequence of computer-assisted thruster firings to achieve a pure roll motion. If not done properly, pitch and yaw motions would ensue, just like a top wobbling crazily at the end of its spin, and then they would have to stop and begin all over again. They roll very slowly, at three-tenths of one degree per second, or one complete turn every 20 minutes. Once this motion is established, they are free to relax and watch Earth and Moon alternate in a steady promenade past their windows, the moon didn't appear to be getting much bigger, but the earth was shrinking noticeably. As bedtime approached, Home scarcely filled a small window. What it lacked in size, however, it made up in brilliance. As more and more blackness became visible all around it, the intensity of its reflected sunlight seemed to increase, at least by comparison. Humans are accustomed to watching the moon and thinking of it as being very bright. But in scientific terms, it is a dullard. It reflects only 7% of the sunlight that strikes its surface. The earth, on the other hand, is four times more reflective than the moon. This is caused primarily by the reflected brilliance of clouds and water. And this is what the crew saw now. White clouds, blue water with but a faint trace of green jungles and only a slightly more noticeable smear of rust as North Africa slowly rotated into view. The window was cold and had a slight film of condensation on it, which threw the Earth a little out of focus and seemed to diffuse its light somewhat. The astronauts sensed no motion on their part, other than the rotation required to distribute the sun's heat evenly and the earth was not turning fast enough for the eye really to track its motion. But the effect was clear. They were hanging weightless in the void while earth turned slowly as it receded. It was a totally different sensation than being in the racetrack of earth orbit. Collins promised himself and conveyed to Neil and Buzz that they must conserve their energy during the first three days of the flight so as to be in peak condition to perform their intricate and demanding chores in lunar orbit. They could not become excited by the view or remain overwrought by the day's adventures. They had to pretend that the flight had not begun yet. That it would not begin until they got to the moon and began their preparations for landing. All this was easy to say, but hard to do. Fortunately, it really helped that all three of them had been in space before, and Collins sensed a feeling of quiet awareness inside the command module, rather than the jubilation and apprehension which would have infected three rookies. As bedtime approached, Fourteen hours after liftoff, 10.30 p.m. in Houston, they tidied up their new home, positioned each switch with care, fastened covers over the windows to blot out the circling sun, and finally the crew stretched out in the darkness. Neil and Buzz were in light mesh sleeping bags under the left and right-hand couches. Collins was above in the left-hand seat with a lap belt, To keep him from floating off, and a miniature headset taped to his ear in case the ground would call. Collins was cautiously optimistic about their day's work. By and large, things went extremely well, and they seemed to be on their way to the moon with two healthy vehicles. There were many, many links in the daisy chain which could break yet, but at least three of the biggest and most fragile ones. Launch, transluter injection, transposition, and docking were behind them. They were on their way, and it was necessary that they sleep. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Anish, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 216 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 11, Transposition, Docking, and Extraction. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I surely did. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my long-time listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that as well as download every single episode of the podcast on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute the most popular donor level, and that is Apollo. There are 60 donors so far. Apollo donors give $50 or more during the calendar year. Thank you for your continued support, Apollo donors. Had a, several afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, I want to give a shout out to Mike Collins and his fantastic book, Carrying the Fire, An Astronaut's Journey. Used that quite extensively on this episode. The mission planners really crammed a lot of stuff into the first day, but of course, that's the way it had to work. They they put in launch, translunar, injection, transposition, docking, extraction, and separation from the third stage. Now, the astronauts are in the long coast uphill against the Earth's gravity, and then, once they get to the top, it'll be downhill with the Moon's gravity pulling stronger at them. This is the time... All three astronauts wanted to rest, take it easy, and not exert themselves. They want to save themselves for the moon, so they'll be at their peak when they're at the moon. Will they be able to do that? We will find out. It is fantastic to have the first landing mission go so smoothly. Hardly a hitch. Just a few minor things that were not enough to stop the mission. For instance, the computer glitch that Collins encountered when he pressed the PRO button, the proceed button, he had to use it twice, and as a result, some fuel was wasted because it, the first time he used it, it stopped the turnaround too soon and by using thrusters to stop it, and then it had to restart and use thrusters to turn it some more and then stopped. And then, of course, he went out. He drifted too far ahead, a hundred feet ahead of the lunar module. So, you know, I think he did a pretty good job of uh, taking care of the problem there. Though, so that that my hats off to Collins. He did a good job. They have uh, now have two good spacecraft, and it's looking very good for a moon landing. Now, I have a bonus clip that I have been trying to get work in since the launch. And this one is uh, Deke Slayton. Slayton was asked how he selects the crew for each mission. And we have talked about this question before. And I thought it would be interesting to hear it straight from the person's mouth. So here is Deke answering the question.
2: The tens of thousands of persons who have made a contribution to this flight of Apollo 11, consider Deke Slayton. David Shumacher, reports from... Because of a heart condition, Donald Slayton, one of the original seven Mercury astronauts, has never been able to come closer to flight than this. But Deke, as everyone calls him, has had as much impact on the space program as any of his non-grounded fellow pilots. For not only does he supervise their training, but he makes the crew assignments. There are certain bureaucratic procedures which supposedly determine which astronaut flies when... But insiders agree it is really Slayton who makes the decision. Well, there isn't any great magic to it. Uh, we select people for the program, of course, and at that time is what I consider the real selection. And Then we go through a preliminary training period of about 18 months to uh, get people up to the point where you're ready to assign them to missions. And at that point, it is just a function of assigning them. It's not really going through some magic process of ranking everybody from 1 to 50. and taking the top three off for this flight and the next three for this one, et cetera. We have to have about six crews for the lunar program that are essentially all identical, and any one of which can do the same job, and we think we do have. And uh, which one ends up on any particular mission in some cases ends up being more chance than anything else. But uh, we have to play the game for this upcoming mission, for example, the prime crew has to be ready to fly it, the backup crew has to be ready to fly it, And if for some reason we don't make it on this shot, uh, then we've got to have another set of crews ready to try it on another one, and another set beyond that, you see. So uh, they've all got to be ready to do the job and capable of it, and we think they are. What about within the crew, the individual assignments? Uh, There, again, in general, of course, we take our most experienced people as the commander and our lesser experienced ones as the uh, command module pilots and the uh, wing pilots. That's kind of the logic there. Clayton Fought being grounded in 1962 argued then and now that the physical requirements were too rigid and his heart could stand the strain despite the extra sound it makes as it beats. I was pretty upset about it obviously because that's what I came in for was to fly but on the other hand uh, it's been a real great program and I figured if I could contribute anything to it uh, in any capacity why that's the thing I wanted to do and so I guess I'm a about as close to it as I can get without flying, which is all I can ask for at this point. Sure I sure don't know of anything else I'd rather be doing anyway. Do you still entertain the hope that in some status you may get a, a space flight at someday? Oh, I keep hoping. And I think playing the probability game, I obviously have to admit it's not too high. And getting older every year like everybody else. And uh, I'm sure this particular heart thing is something I've probably had all my life. and It isn't gonna get any better or any worse, but it's always gonna be a question mark. And, I figure my best chance is one of these days they'll decide, gee, we ought to fly somebody that's a little abnormal just to see what happens in space so and send your grandmother up next year or something and that'll be my chance.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Deke. And try not to worry. I think you're going to get a flight. Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. I was very pleased to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Jim B. from England earned his Rocket Emoji. Christoph L. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. James D. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Phoebe D. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Marie D. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. And Isaac P. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Thank you so much. So that brings the total number of Patreons to 126. That is just 24 short of the goal of 150 before the end of the year. Now our overall donors for the year have reached 212, with a goal of reaching 300. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, and I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level, or whatever level you want, or you can sign up with Patreon for a $1 donation per month, sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the homepage and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. For those of you who already donated for 2017, I certainly appreciate it. I have some of those Orion desk model kits to give out. The model is of an Orion spacecraft service module and solar arrays. It is made out of card stock. It's paper. To assemble, you just push out the pre-cut parts and fold them together. To select a winner, I gave every donor a number from 1 to 212. I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number 159. Donor number 159 is Brian Bertrand. Brian, if you would, email me, mike, at spacerockethistory.com and tell me your address and I will mail this out to you. I still have a few more of these models. It looks like two or three maybe, that we can continue to give out. So we'll do that again next week. I was pleased to see the podcast received two new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past week. I would like to thank Carter W. Gill and Anonymous for uh, writing those reviews and giving me the all-important five-star ratings. I certainly do appreciate your taking the time to do that. Thank you so much. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage of our particular episode on all social media. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will continue with Apollo 11 through Cislunar Space. Last week, I gave you the top 10 countries for downloads for the month of June. This week, I have countries 11 through 20. So this is 11 through 20 for the most downloads in the month of June. Number 11, New Zealand. 12, Sweden. 13, Italy moves up. 14, Ireland moves up. 15, Norway. 16, Switzerland. 17, Austria, 18, Spain, 19, Finland, and 20, South Africa. I would like to give a big shout out to all my listeners in countries 11 through 20. Thank you for listening. Okay, that's about all I have for this week. I will try to get episode 217 up by next Thursday. So long for now.